Hey guys, welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall. Today we've got Dan and Jim from the Bonhoeffer Project, and they're using a giant megaphone to say, Watch your language! Though this phrase is usually associated with some negative word, phrase, or idea, it's also a great reminder of what we are to do as we think through the language we use that both informs and guides how we do life and how we do relationships. We have all struggled with our words and the meaning of our words in every area of life, even in disciple making. Let's listen to Dan and Jim talk about the importance of words and explore this important yet overlooked aspect of disciple making. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. My name is Cindy Perkins. I get the privilege to serve the Bonhoeffer Project as the Chief Operating Officer. Love what I do. Keep the plates spinning. That's my job, to keep the plates spinning. So we are so excited to have you here. Just a couple of housekeeping things. If you didn't receive a card, let us know. If you were here yesterday, all you need to do is flip it over and put your name. That's what we're going to use to draw for giveaways at the end. Um, and then donuts are in the back, as we promised. Leo showed up with the donuts. Leo! All right, today it is my privilege to introduce two guys that I just love, love working with. Uh, they've recently written a book called The Language of Disciple Making. And uh, we have that available here. Actually, Crystal has uh, brought stuff down, so you don't have to go find the table at the end. You can. Uh, purchase at the end if you're interested. But these guys, I want to introduce to you Jim Thomas, who is our director of press, and and Dan Lights, who is the chief operating officer. So, (laughs) I'd like him to be that. Dan is our CEO. He leads our organization, and we are just excited, love working with these guys. And they're going to talk to you today about the importance of words. And words matter. There it is. Give it up for Cindy. All right. Let me pray, and then we'll we'll just dive in. So join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that uh, everyone's here and they're at least present. I hope that they're present mentally, not just uh, physically. Uh, God, help us to be intentional with our words. And God, just give us your wisdom. Open our hearts and our ears uh, for your spirit this morning in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit today about words, language, uh, specifically. One of the things, and I'm going to try not stand in front of the TV so y'all can see it. Uh, I've got a few slides for you. Before we dive in, uh, one of the things that has always uh, bugged me is language. Now, the book that Jim and I wrote together, it's one of these things that I didn't know that the Lord had kind of prepared me a long time ago for the information that I'm going to share with you in a moment. And one of the things that I loved to study back in the day was logic. Uh, for those of you who are, uh, you know, love uh, logic and systems and um, uh, critical thinking, all of that stuff is something that really resonated with me. And there's three fundamental laws of logic, uh, law of excluded middle, law of non-contradiction, and the law of identity. And so the law of identity is what I want to talk to you guys about just a little bit here. Law of identity is simply this. Something is what we say it is. So you can recognize this as a house because we've all agreed that this is a house, right? This is a podium or a table. And again, depending on, you know, what we're using it for, it may change 
what we call it. This is a table. In most cases today, it's a podium. This is the color red. Everyone agrees that this is the color red, unless you're colorblind, and then you're really upset at me right now, like that's really messed up that you just said that. But this is red. We've all agreed. It's basically what we'd call a mental handshake that we make with everyone. It's an agreement with each other that when we're using our language, when we're talking to one another, we're in agreement on what we mean. Bill Hall is Bill Hall. We know that. We've met him. We know him. He's tall. Every time he walks in a room, he's the only guy I can hug and feel his belly button with my ear. Like that's, and that's hard for me because I'm a pretty tall guy. But when he gets in the room, I'm like, oh, this guy's really tall. He's a basketball player. It's just what he is and it's how he does things. So as we think about these things, the law of identity really gives us that mental handshake that we make with everyone. Now, what I want to explain to you guys is is a little bit of our process before I get into more of the language and why it's important. When it comes to what the Bonhoeffer Project does is we're a little bit different than many organizations because we like to go what we call upstream. Upstream is this idea that if you look at this, you know, just kind of rudimentary picture, we've got the upstream, which is the gospel, the headwaters, it's where the water is formed and starts flowing into the river, that's scripture. And then here you've got midstream, which is models, strategies, definitions. That's what you're finding a lot of here at the uh, Disciple Making Forum. A lot of different tables, a lot of different booths that give us information and processes and systems. And here's the best way, best practices. And this is for men and this is for women and this is for underprivileged and this is for overseas. This is for international, right? There's all sorts of different methods and modes. And then downstream, you get to the content schedule people. You get to the practical stuff, the bones of what you're doing day to day in your own um, uh, context, in your own churches, in your own ministries. Where language is important is up here. Language is important in the upstream because let me explain a little bit of how this kind of happened to me. Um, one of the things that I was recognizing, if you've ever, if you've ever talked to a Mormon, uh, I've, I've met a lot of people that have talked to Mormons uh, many years and they've said, oh, you know what? I think they may be Christian, right? Because we're saying the same words, but we're missing each other. Let me give you another example. Um, my wife and I, when we were first married, uh, this is one of those, uh, you know, early marriage stories. I said to my wife, uh, there was this uh, bakery that we loved to go to, and we would get these hot, fresh chocolate chip cookies. And you know what I'm talking about? They're, they're the ones, and again, some people are, are weird and they like soft cookies. Mm. And some people are super weird and they like just cookies that hurt your teeth. I like that balance of both, where it's got a little crust on the outside, so when you bite into it, it has a little crunch, but when you get into the deep end, it's warm, it's chewy, right? This is joy. That's going to be at the marriage supper of the lamb, guaranteed, and there's going to be no calories. It's going to be great. But the idea is, we would go and buy these, and if we were lucky, we'd buy them hot and fresh. And we'd take them home, and it was just a joy to bite into these things. Oh, man, they were so good. But sometimes there was an off day, and we would go in, and they had been baked, you know, a couple hours earlier. And so they were room temperature. And so that night, uh, we had a box of these cookies, and I looked at my wife, and I said, you know what would be really good? One of those <clears throat> cookies. And I told her, again, we've only been married maybe a year at this point, and I said, why don't you throw those in the toaster? Because those would be good, hot and fresh. Now, 
when I said, throw them in the toaster, this is what I pictured. <laughs> You're all tracking, right? We had a toaster oven. You toast them. Get them in the toaster. Woo! When my wife heard me say this, she heard toaster. Right? See? We're, we're now getting into a, like, this is going to be a deep doctrinal debate over what a toaster really is. The problem is, again, I said toaster. She heard toaster. Same word, different picture. And so what the result was of that... <laughs> I was in the bedroom and I'm like, babe, what is that smell? She goes, does it smell like hot, fresh cookies? I'm like, ah. <laughs> it should, but it does not. It smells like something's burning. And she goes, huh, I didn't put him in for that long. Well, what happened is they were sitting in vertically and because they were perfect, they began to heat and crumble. And they fell on the heating elements. And so as I walked out into the kitchen to examine, because the smell was getting a little more intense, we had a new flammable toaster. And so obviously that's not something that we wanted, but it brings to light the understanding that if we are not intentional about what we mean... We're going to say the same words and think we're talking about the same thing and end up at the end of the day having no idea what we said. Or worse, we're going to think we understood, go do something based upon what we thought, and it's going to be completely opposite versus what should have been done or what we thought we communicated. So what we need to do is obviously communicate and communicate well and over-communicate and be very intentional about the language that we're using, which is why, and let me go back to this slide real quick. We need to take this up to the headwaters. We need to go or to the upstream, right after the headwaters, right after scripture. We say, what are we saying? What do the words mean that we're saying? And this is a very, I don't want to say it's a difficult process, but it's a humbling process, right? It's humbling because when you say to someone, when you talk about discipleship, right? We're here at a disciple-making conference, but I guarantee you, if I gave each one of you a three-by-five card and I said, give me your definition of a disciple, we're going to have different definitions, aren't we? This is why it's so important that we're on the same page. So when we say the words, we understand what you mean, or if we don't understand, we have good questions that say, what do you mean by that? Because that's a question, and I'll tell you this, this is a... Side note, but pro-marriage tip, ask this to your spouse often. Because sometimes, again, I find myself, my wife and I, we don't argue. We have intense fellowship. It's totally different. It's biblical. <laughs> and when we have that intense fellowship, sometimes I've realized four hours later that the reason we've had that intense fellowship is because we misunderstood one another based upon the language that we're using, she said a word that I took one way, or I said a word that she took another way. And so now in our marriage, 18 years this month, I get to ask her, babe, what do you mean by that? And that's a difficult question, I think, for some of us to ask because it's humbling. You don't think I know what a disciple is? Of course I know what a disciple is. Well, what is it? Well, er, uh, I mean, it's, uh, 
right? And we can miss each other in all of these things. Jim. So I agree with everything Dan said except for one thing. And that's this. In my chocolate chip cookies, I need to have pecans. I'm just saying, do I have any pecan lovers in the room? Thank you. You put those in. Just lost a few people. A couple of you just lost your salvation. Um, and it's pecan, by the way. Who says pecan? Who says pecan? Anybody? Okay. She was bold. When she raised her hand, she's she like, was bold. Right. Let me just Let me just help you and correct your language. A pecan is what you put underneath the bed if you can't make it to the bathroom at night. Okay? It's pecan. Pecan is not even a word. Okay? So you're just making stuff up at that point, right? I also love the marriage thing because uh, we are youth pastor. He says, this is what every, every marriage retreat, right? Men and women are different. Men need to change. There you go. Okay? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, and speaking of change, I think one of the reasons that we're all here, while we're here as an organization, while you're here, is that we want to see culture change in the life of our churches and our ministries. We want to see culture change. We want to see disciple making become the jet fuel of what we do, right? I was just talking to my friend over there who, who works here with this conference. We were talking about the difference between this conference and other conferences. And we go to another major conference uh, in the U.S. every year. And it's, man, I, can I just tell you, it's a fire hose into your mouth. And you're just, there's every topic under the sun. And we have to spend half of our time as an organization convincing Christians that disciple making is important. The great thing about this conference is we don't have to do that. We can go underneath the water and we can start talking at a deeper level, which is great. We in the Bonhoeffer Project say this, it takes 17% within the life of your organization to see culture change begin to happen. 17%. 17% of your people need to buy into a new idea to see the culture start to change. Now, for some of you, that seems impossible. For others of you, you're like, only 17%? I was... Um, I was a youth pastor for 15 years, executive pastor for about six to eight years. I've been a senior pastor now for 10 years. And uh, I was a youth pastor in the largest church I served. We had about 9,000 members. And I was uh, new to the church. I was sitting in my office, and I got a knock on the door, and there was one of our single men there. And he said, I have a gift for you. And I went, okay, this should be interesting. I don't know you. What is this going to be? And he handed me the mo- a model of an aircraft carrier. <clears throat> and on the side of the model, he had written the name of the church. And he said this, it'll turn, but it'll take time. (laughs) And he walked away, and I put it on the shelf above my computer, and it stayed there the rest of my tenure there to remind me that this behemoth of a church that I was serving, which felt very mechanical at times, and felt like it was actually running over me at times, could change. Great thing is I look back at that church now, and I see their website, and new pastor now, new staff now, they're talking about discipling. And that's exciting to me to see that it did, that was 15 years ago now, that the aircraft carrier started to turn, right? So how do we create culture change? Well, not by burning toasters. No. <laughs> All right, three, three uh, main ideas, and that's this. Number one, understand your past and your present. Understand your past and your present. One of the things we need to remember is that we should not discount the past and what God has done around us uh, for the sake of the present and the future. We need to not necessarily live in the past, but we need to honor the past, okay? Whether you're a church plant, even if you're in a church plant, you have if you have Christians coming to your church plant, they're bringing their past with them. 
And they're bringing every assumption they have and the programs and the processes and the visions into your new church plan. If you're in an established church, you know that you're dealing with past. I'm in what I would consider a legacy church. This year, our church is 193 years old. We were a church plant in 1858. We still have in our minutes what to do if Sherman marches through. <laughs> Serious. I'm not, that's not a joke, really. I, it's on paper somewhere in the files in the bowels of the church, Right? And so how do you take, uh, and I'm in the Baptist tribe, how do you take a traditional First Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm not at First Atlanta, but in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and walk in and say, you know what, we need to start making disciples. It's the aircraft carrier, right? I can't do that by throwing out 193 years of the past, or I won't have a job very long. But... We can lead them by honoring the past to a new vision. Okay, so first thing, understand your past and your present, where you are now. Secondly, embrace God's vision for your future. Okay, you do that by starting now. Okay, starting now by casting a new vision. And we're going to get to leadership in a second, but start casting a vision. And one of the ways that Dan and I argue for this is through language change. When I came to this church, I've been there 10 years now, just celebrated uh, in, in April, 10 years at this church as senior pastor, three years it took me before I heard language changing, okay? And the idea that we start integrating language across the board, that language leading to a different type of lifestyle within the life of the church, through our whole staff, in every environment that we have, all of a sudden people started repeating to us the language we had been using for three years. And when we started hearing that, we said, oh, 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 something's going on. Something's happening. Let's keep going. Okay. Um, next, quoting Eugene Peterson, committing to a long obedience in the same direction. And I think these three areas are critical. Language change. Once you're about to throw up because you've said it so many times, say it again. Ad nauseum. Okay. Keep saying it. Keep saying it. Because about the time you're ready to give up, they'll hear it. Okay. Ad nauseum. As Dan wrote in his chapter on culture, as our words go, so goes the culture. Okay? Life change is the second way. Tell stories. I'm horrible at celebrating. I'm a, if you have ever done the DISC personality test, um, I'm the C with a D, so I have to be organized. And I'm moving on to the next thing. If it falls apart, I get mad about it. That's kind of my personality, right? So I'm organized. I have to go. And sometimes I forget people are involved, right? That it's not really about the process as much as it's about the people. And I have to remember to celebrate the people, right? And to tell, we do that by telling stories. It's critical. And finally, organizational change by developing a plan to lead your people forward. And that's what the Bonhoeffer Project's all about. So let me give you a warning real quick. Change is messy. Change is messy. You know why change is messy? Because change always involves loss. Now, if it's your idea, you love change. Right? Why? Because you're not losing anything. You're on the front end of the train. You're driving the thing. You're creating what your vision is in that situation. But I want you to understand, when someone else has an idea for change, you may not be on board. Why? Because there is a real or a perceived loss that you're going to experience. So one thing that we need to remember is that because change is messy, we need to take intentional steps forward without running over the people we're trying to Okay, I had a guy at a church when I was an executive pastor in Texas. Uh, 
who uh, in that church, we went from Sunday school to Sunday morning Bible studies. Then we started having home groups too. So we couldn't call them Sunday morning Bible studies because they happened at other times. So we moved to life groups and then we had Sunday life groups and home life groups and we changed the name. And I had this guy uh, who, who was a friend, but every day I'm walking down the hall and I hear it's Sunday school every Sunday. He'll be at the other end of the hall. It's Sunday school. Like, well, not here. You know, I really don't want to go to school on Sunday. I want to be involved in a group. We call it Sunday school in my church because I don't want to die on that hill. But, but at that church, it was life groups. And, but here, here was his point. Sunday school is what I grew up with. It typified my childhood and my youth. And by you changing the name, it threatens loss in my life. The thought of what I grew up with, right? As a result, change requires leadership. I want to give you two quotes. Okay, Here's the first one. Uh, Ronald Heifetz and Martin Linsky are uh, professors at Harvard Business School of phenomenal books. I read a couple of them in my PhD program. Leadership on the Line is one of them. This is one of their quotes. Leadership is this, disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. Disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. The problem is we get so passionate and excited about disciple making that, again, we run over our people to get to our goal. But it's this. Leading your or disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. The hope of leadership lies in the capacity to deliver disturbing news and raise difficult questions in a way that people can absorb, prodding them to take up the message rather than ignore it or kill the messenger. My uh, wife's cousin uh, went to a church in North Atlanta, and one Sunday morning the staff stepped up on stage, stepped to the pulpit, and said, we've just killed all of our Sunday morning small groups. We're going to a whole home-based model, and we've assigned you to a group. How do you think that went? Right? And they lost half their young adult contingency. They started going to different churches. Because they don't want to be assigned to a group. They want to be with their friends. They want to build community with the ones they've already built community with, right? They... We're so excited about this new model that they felt would help to benefit the church, benefit their people, and to grow the church that they ran over their people in the process. And we need to be extremely careful. So, Todd Bolsinger in Canoeing the Mountains. If you hadn't read Canoeing the Mountains, I challenge you to read that book. It's a Christian version of what Linsky and those guys did at Harvard. Um, it's about adaptive leadership. This is what they say. Disappoint people too much, and they give up on you. Stop following and may even turn on you. Don't disappoint them enough, and you'll never lead them anywhere. And so when we start to take steps forward with our language, we start to see culture change. All right, Dan? You know, one of the things, uh, just to kind of speak to this a a little further, um, when I took over, so I'm the senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Oceanside in San Diego, and when I took over the senior pastor role about four years ago, um, there was a lot of language that was built in. Now, I, I'm part of the church, been part of the church for almost 15 years. So I was part of that language, but I started to do some examination of that language. And that brings me to really kind of the crux of where we're going this, because one of the things that I think a lot of times we forget is the process in doing this. There's, there's a process. It's what we cover in the book. Um, we go through a bunch of different, and we'll get to that. Jim will talk about that. We'll get a bunch of different words that need to be dealt with. 
And so one of the things that we do, or the three things that we do through the book, and really it's what you need to do, whether you have the book or not, it's first expose the problem. Um, give you a perfect example of exposing the problem. When um, our church was uh, a little younger, we were in a smaller building, and we had a video venue called The Cafe. It's called The Cafe because they served coffee and they had donuts, and it was a cafe. Well, when they brought that over to the new building, they didn't have a better word for it, so they called it The Cafe. The problem is they didn't serve donuts in there. They didn't serve coffee in there. It was simply a video venue but it was called the cafe. Now, think about that for a moment, right? You're new to the church and you say, oh, oh, you need to go into the cafe. Now your mind goes, okay, sweet, cafe. You get out your wallet, you're thinking, oh man, gonna get something sweet. And you go to the cafe and there's nothing there except people in a screen. Like, well, I'm sorry. And it says it, big bold letters, script, farmhouse, whatever, cafe. But if you go to what, look up a definition of a cafe. It wasn't a cafe. Unless it was like, bring your own donuts. We let you eat in there. But again, it it got to this place where I, again, this is where I really feel the Lord had kind of prepped me for this long before we even wrote this book. I, I stopped someone. I'm like, does anybody else find it weird that we call it the cafe but there's no food in there. They don't sell anything. There's no donuts. There's no pastries. There's no coffee, but it's called the cafe. So they changed the name to the family sanctuary and it was good. But just like Jim talked about, there were people, this is the cafe. They didn't even care. They just knew that it was going to cause problems in their mind. They were going to mess it up. We even had the same thing. It was a um, a unimproved area that we had in our, in our building for a, a long time. And it was where all the old stuff in the church went to die. So it, it, it garnered the, mon- the moniker, the boneyard. Anybody got a boneyard in your church, right? It's the stuff that's 40 years old. I'm like, wow. Well, then somebody said, well, that language sounds bad. We're at a church. Probably shouldn't have a boneyard at the church. So they called it the, oh, what was the next one? The uh, designated storage area. And they even came up with an acronym, the DSA. (laughs) (laughs) Then somebody's like, oh, that's too many words, too many syllables. I don't like acronyms. They said, let's just call it the unimproved area. (laughs) So now, depending on what generation you were in our church... And so I was newer generation, so I called it the designated unimproved boneyard. (laughs) That's what I called it. Because I was really making fun of everyone. Some people got it, and they're like, hey, you're making fun of us. And I'm like, correct. Because you keep changing the language, and it's not at a rate, as Jim was saying, that people can absorb. People were stuck on the old language, but it comes down to evaluation. And evaluation can take on many forms, asking people. Uh, There's a lot of uh, homework that we offer in the Bonhoeffer Project, and some of that is around language, where you have to go to people around you and ask them, when I say this word, what do you hear me say? You want to talk about humbling? 
Ask someone what they hear you say when you say discipleship. Ask someone what they hear you say. Like, we, if you're a pastor and you teach, you get this all the time. Somebody comes to you after, oh, pastor, great word today. Ask them a follow-up question. What part do you like? The prayer at the end? When you were done. Yeah, when you were wrapping wrapping it up. So it exposes the problem. Once you've exposed that problem, now you get into the evaluation. This is where you can get together as a team and discuss what do we mean when we say this? What have we meant? What's the history of this word? Because sometimes the history is good. Cafe meant cafe when it was a cafe. But moving forward, we relied on history, not on current need. We didn't rely on what it was today. And again, that's the part that's hard because I know, as Jim said, we've got that traditional mindset, right? He's not going to throw away 193 years of history just because, well, I'm Jim Thomas and here I am. This is what I'm doing. Dadgummit. Dadgummit. (laughs) Pecans. down the hall. Thank you. But once we've done that, once we've exposed the problem, once we've evaluated our language, now it's time to start implementing. And this is best done, I'll be honest with you, because I've had to do this in my own team. It's best done as a team. Getting people's input. Don't just go to them one day and say, all right, you're going to change, and here's what you're going to change to. I mean, that may work in some contexts, especially if it's critical, Right? Mission critical stuff that needs to be delegated. Hey, this needs to be done right here and right now. But sometimes it needs to be evaluated. Hey, let's sit down. Hey, what do you guys hear me say? What, what, do, we, what do we mean when we say discipleship? What is a disciple? What is a disciple in our context? What do we mean when we say you need to be discipled? What do we mean when we say, how do we know when you've been discipled? What is that language? How do we wrap that up? And again, there's many of these that we talk about in the book, but these are all critical. And again, it may seem like an affront to your intelligence to go back and define words that you're going to see in scripture and go, duh. Well, yeah, it is duh. But if it's duh, why aren't we all saying the same thing? See, it's, it's duh because it should be known. <clears throat> the problem is it's not. And it's not clear. So we need to make it clear. I want to quote my sister from Cameroon over here. She said this, she said, sometimes we have to stop to start. And so sometimes we get so entrenched in what we've done and have such ownership over what we've done that we won't humble ourselves enough to reevaluate if we're doing what God is actually calling us to do. And so to be able to truly evaluate our language and implement new language is the willingness to stop. And that takes humility, right? Real quick, what I want to do is give you the kind of theological, philosophical backing to language um, and why we need to, why language is so important. The first is this, that we're formed by language. We see that language is literally the art of creation. We see it in Genesis 1, right? God spoke, let there be light, right? With our language, we create ideas, identities, perceived realities, and the context for living life. Secondly, we're sustained by language. We move through life based on language. We have several uh, international mission partners uh, at our church. One is in southern Brazil. We've been planting uh, Baptist churches in southern Brazil for for about 15 years now. 
And uh, on a first vision trip I took down with my worship pastor and one of our laymen, uh, we got there and landed in the Sao Paulo airport. Anybody ever been to Brazil before? Uh, nobody been to Brazil before. Okay. Um, and we got to the Sao Paulo airport and we went to a typical Brazilian restaurant called Pizza Hut. And, uh, we told, we told the layman that was with us, we said, Hey, go up to, to the counter and get us some Guadana. Now, Guadana is like a cherry ginger ale soft drink that has the caffeine of about 12 cups of coffee. It's awesome. You just stay awake through your whole mission trip. It's, it's awesome. Right. And so he doesn't know any Portuguese yet. He can say hi, bathroom and bye. I mean, that's kind of his thing. So we said, go get us some Guadana. And so he walks up to the counter and our worship pastor and I are standing out in the concourse and you see him talking to the girl and you see there's some confusion. You see some stuff going on. She goes, okay, walks away, comes back with three huge pitchers of beer. (laughs) And he's thinking, my two Baptist pastors are standing here watching me and you, the, the tension was palpable. As he's going, um, and you know, we're avoiding his gaze, so we're not giving him any help at all. And he, and you see the girl kind of like, what did I do wrong? And you see them trying to communicate, and they started going to sign language and Pictionary and, you know, trying to figure all this out. And finally, you saw recognition. And the girl went, And she took the beer away and brought back, and you just saw his shoulders go from here to here, right? Language eventually helped turn the situation. We are sustained by language. If we don't communicate clearly, listen, we're going to get the wrong product, right? Right? Number three, we're connected by relationship, uh, in relationship by language. As much as language is the currency of life, it's also the jet fuel of relationships. We already mentioned marriage. One of the components to healthy marriage is saying yes, ma'am. <laughs> is healthy communication. I'm sorry. There you go. Number next, we create worldviews by language. Uh, Solomon said this, Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinks within himself, so is he. You see, the words and symbols associated with our thinking will create the larger context for a group of people and will direct their actions towards specific objectives and goals that line up with our way of thinking. Okay? We're created. We create worldviews by language. You're creating a worldview in, the, in your ministry context with the language that you use. Are you using the right language? And finally, we form societies and cultures based on languages. Thinking and language helps us form worldviews and individuals and groups of people. Societies and cultures are then formed around these ideals and desires produced through that language. I sent out a, uh, I kind of put myself against the, the wall, if you will, and I sent out an email to a bunch of my pastor friends. We have a great evangelical fellowship of senior pastors across denominations in our county and, and their friends. And that's when, when people show up at your church and they're mad at that pastor, you know, and I say, yeah, that's my friend. So they either stay and change or they go to another pastor and gripe, right? But we have a great fellowship. So I said, I said, when you think of our church, give me one sentence about what you think about. And I was honored because when they responded, they said, First Baptist Church is a disciple-making church, almost bar none. And I saw at that point that we had created a culture that we had created a worldview that led to creating a different type of society within the life of our church, and other people were taking notice of it, right? Language helps us to to determine ideas, which turn into ideologies, which turn into lifestyles. Therefore, here's, here's the critical point. 
False ideas are the greatest obstacle to the reception of the gospel. False ideas are the greatest obstacle to the reception of the gospel. So how does this relate to disciple making? Just as there's language attached to life, there's language attached to disciple making. The language we use regarding disciple making will determine our theology of discipleship as well as our practice of discipleship. And here's what I want you to remember. Faulty language breeds faulty discipleship. It just does. So our goal in the book is to move beyond the descriptive nature of being a disciple to a process of making disciples. And as we do, language is the key. Therefore, we introduce seven words in the book that all of you know already, right? And that will help you form a language of disciple-making using the threefold strategy in every chapter that Dan talked about a second ago. So there's the book, pretty covered. Uh, these are the seven words, okay? Gospel, disciple, vision, culture, plan, implementation, and multiplication. Now, I want to, to point something out here. If you paid attention and had a donut so you were awake, you'll recognize that this goes from upstream to downstream. And we've tried to integrate words within the life of the book that will help you all the way through your journey. And so as you start to implement culture change to be a disciple-making organization or to strengthen a disciple-making organization, our prayer is that as you work through this language, that you will create a new language of disciple-making within your context. All right, uh, we just want to give you just a few minutes. What questions might you have? Yeah. Other than people leaving your church, what are key signs that you're moving too quickly? Yeah, that's a great question. Dan. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's really in the adoption, yeah. right? Are yeah. you seeing it being adopted? Are you seeing people catch the vision? Jim said it, and, and it's really, it's the mindset of a lot of times as leaders, we can communicate something and we'll have a captive audience and we'll think they got it. But we don't see what they do when they go away. And it's something that Jim said, and, and I'll reiterate, you need to speak this stuff until you're blue in the face. Mm -hmm. Because when you're sick of saying it, somebody's just hearing it for the first time. Yeah. And, and right, we've all read scripture where you open up the Bible and you read a verse that you've read a thousand times, you read it that next time, you're like, yeah. whoa. Every Christmas and Easter, right? Right? Yeah. And that's yeah. really what's happening is that people may have heard you, but it didn't register. Yeah. And so it takes some time. So be patient with people. A uh, uh, brother of mine, when I... Uh, you know, took over the church that I'm at. I called another brother who took over a, a really large church. And I said, you know, give me some advice. And he said, and I, I kind of write this in the book. He says, listen, you're on a battleship. You're at sea. You're going 30 knots. You're trying to turn the ship 180 degrees and retrofit at the same time. And so I said, what you're saying is you need to shepherd people through a change. Don't make them victims of the change. And he said, that's it. Yeah. So you're trying to pull people with you. And if you're seeing people that don't seem to get it, mm -hmm. pay attention to them. Mm -hmm. what, what, what didn't you hear? Or, or what, is there anything confusing? Can I make things clear? And what you'll find when you solicit that is maybe you weren't as clear as you thought you were. Because we hear it in our own minds. It sounds great. It's good word. But as soon as we ask somebody else, again, it's what I was talking about. What did you hear me say? Yeah. Then they're like, oh, I, I heard you say that you're going to shoot my puppy. 
Because again, that's the change part that they're like, this is the thing. You don't understand. I helped birth that ministry. I poured my life into that. And now you're changing it. You didn't even think to talk to me. And again, those are stories all over the place. I've had that. I mean, let me just to reiterate. In our church, we had to make a a big change. And this is tough. Uh, Oceanside, where I'm from, is is a very, uh, there's a lot of Pacific Islanders, a lot of Samoans. Um, and we had at our church a hula ministry. Amen. And some of you are like, huh? We tried that in Georgia. It didn't work. <laughs> now, for some people, fly. like for me, I was like, that's not really a ministry. It's more of a fellowship. It's more of a let's hang out in hula. Like it was, but I had to deal with that delicately because these women put their heart and souls into that. So it's hard to just say, hey, we're done with that. We're not doing that anymore. Good luck. We had to take time. And you got to take time. It's a patient thing. You know, one of the things I saw from a very practical standpoint, people vote with their feet and they vote with their mouth. Um, And I do see people leave when they don't believe in the vision, but I also see people do this and they sit and they soak, right? And I think one, one thing we do as leaders, maybe too much, is try to appease those who will never agree with us. Right. There's a Southernism, my friend Kenny, I don't see this morning, uh, says this. Sometimes you just got to plow around the stump because it's going to take too much time to get it out of the ground. Now, here's what I found when I've, and I've had to do that at our church now several times in this process of people that are so entrenched in their way of thinking and not wanting to move because of what Dan said, the perceived loss that they're going to have, that we've lovingly, now this is key, they're not the enemy. Your people aren't the enemy. Don't be afraid of your people. Okay. We lovingly plowed around the stump and went on. And it was amazing to me that in several of these cases, I turned around and those people followed us because they saw that everybody else had. And now they were not only mad, they were alone, which was critical for them. I had an 80-year-old guy who uh, we started D groups as part of our strategy, right? Discipleship groups. And he showed up at our discipleship pastors, um, discipleship group. And he's one of the people that we lovingly call in staff meeting the usual suspects. Um, Some of that landed with some of y'all. And he showed up and was going to use the D group as his forum to gripe about me, about the church, about everything else, right? (laughs) And he was in that group for about a year. And every time he came in, you know, it just kind of sucked the air out of the room. And they loved on him and they kept on there with the curriculum they were using. They kept growing and blah. About a year in, he showed up and he goes, I've got something to say. And you know, you just you just hear everybody internally going, oh, Lord. Here we go. <laughs> you know, he said, this week I learned something. What'd you learn? I learned that I'm supposed to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. How come no one ever told me that? This guy's 80 years old. How come I never knew that? This changes everything. And every guy's jaw was on the ground. And he's been one of the sweetest supporters I've had since that moment. But that's one of the guys we had plowed around. Lovingly, every time I saw him, love you, hug, not going to listen. We're going to keep going, right? And the Spirit, we gave breath for the Spirit to do a work in his life. So, yeah. yeah. Um, this is, seems like one half of the coin. Uh, the other one is that culture also uh, changes the meaning of words. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm yes. from Portland. It's not uncommon for me to see a sign in somebody's yard that says love wins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So love has a completely different meaning. Right. Um, how much time do you guys spend addressing 
cultural meanings of words that are obviously being brought right into the church, right. being influenced from the culture, and addressing those and unpacking those versus pushing and repeating the words that you want infused in your church. Yeah, the key is the headwaters. What does scripture say? That's the key to all of this because I'm not, we're not creating definitions for you. We're not saying, hey, here's your definition. We're saying, what does scripture say? What does scripture say the definitions are? Now, some of them, obviously, like culture, we've seen, and I, I bring it up in the book as well. I mean, anybody who's got the name Karen is a little bit bummed out these days. Yeah. <laughs> Language shifted right around that. Yeah. And it hit anybody named Karen squirt in the face. Right? There's words that have shifted meaning over time. You know, and this is why no one names their kid Jezebel or Hitler. <laughs> right? Because things changed. And all of a sudden, there's now a, a, a big problem with these things. But that's why we're always going to point you to the headwaters of Scripture. What does God say? What does his word say? What does Jesus say about these words? Because, again, we could spend too much time nuancing. And people say, well, love wins. Well, what do you mean by love? Yeah. Because, again, that's the question that I started at the beginning. What do you mean by that? Because what you'll find in most cases, especially with the world, the secular world, when you say, what do you mean by that? They have no idea. They're just parroting what the culture says. It sounds good. It makes me feel good. Everybody else is doing it. But all you have to do is ask one simple question and they're lost. And then you can then fill or backfill or give them the definition. Well, here's what love is. And you talk about Christ. Yeah. Can we say thank you to the guys? Yeah. Yeah. So such an interesting discussion and we keep having it. One of the things I, I want to tell you, I get to be uh, the, the spokesperson to tell you what we do in the Bonhoeffer Project. We're here to serve you. That's really what we do. We serve you in a context of taking you through a 10-month process. One of the things that we have found as we talk to people is that a lot of leaders don't disciple because they've never been discipled. And they don't necessarily know what that looks like. And so we kind of model that for you in this 10-month process as we disciple you not that this is your personal discipleship but we're doing some leadership discipleship with you as we help you walk through a process it's 10 months long we start at the headwaters and we help you figure out what your gospel is we spend a couple of months on that one of the things that we have learned in our society and that that just breaks my heart I'm, I'm in my other job i'm a college professor so i get students coming out of high school that can't think on their own right only what YouTube and TikTok tell them is what gets through. And I'm like, we're doing a 24-hour fast of electronics when I get back. <laughs> so excited just to see what God does in that space. But, but we haven't learned in our society any longer how to cr critically think about things. And so we help you do that. Um, we walk through. I wanted to show you this. This is there's some of these over there. This tells you what the ten months. It's also on our website for the non-paper people. Um, but this tells you what we do in those ten months, where we land, how we uh, help you engage. Now, just like uh, a hula ministry is going to do fine in Oceanside, California, Fayetteville, Georgia is not. What I do in Tampa, Florida, is not necessarily going to work in your context in in the Northwest, right? So, so we help you walk through the process of how to create a discipleship plan for your ministry. And it's not always church. It's not always church leaders. 
We have women who walk through. We have women-only groups walk through. Uh, leading women's ministry. I have one lady who's um, just finished, and she's going to be doing a hiking ministry as discipleship. I'm so excited to see how that, that goes. But we help you walk through creating the plan. By the time you come out at the end of the 10 months, you will have a plan that you can implement in your context. So it's totally contextual. You gather with six to 10 other people um, from all different denominations, which is really kind of fun because we don't parse out denominational differences in our project. We totally land with the Nicene Creed, and that's it. That's where we, Jesus is Lord, he is part of the Trinity, those kind of things. You can see all that on the website as well if you, if you want to look at what we believe and where we stop the process. But, but it's just such a great time to sit with these people. You develop a camaraderie. And it gives you an idea that we are uh, in something so much bigger than just us, right? It's so much bigger than me and so much bigger than you to step into the kingdom. And we're building the kingdom of Jesus, not the kingdom of the world, right? Kingdom of the world thinks it's in charge. Sorry. We know that, right? But we have to teach other people, and that's what discipleship is all about, is taking other people by the hand and saying, come on, let's do this Jesus thing. And so we teach and train leaders how to engage the folks in the ministry context. Thanks for listening, y'all. I hope that this encouraged you to be uber clear when you're starting groups or when you're discipling one-on-one to define the terms that you're using by love or by disciple or by disciple making, all those kind of good things. This was a great reminder for that. Up next, we've got another episode from the Bonhoeffer Project. So if you haven't already, I would love it if you would click subscribe to this channel so that you know when I drop that episode. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. See ya.